Good morning. You can be seated. Welcome to Hope Church. If this is your first time here, welcome. I'm glad you could join us this morning. My name is David Mathis. I'm the English pastor here. Ruben Barbosa is our Spanish pastor. We are a little bit of a unique church that we have two languages, but we are one body, um, joined in with the one hope of Jesus Christ. So if you know Spanish, if you understand Spanish, I encourage you to join us uh, following this hour for our Spanish worship. Um, if you really understand Spanish, uh, join us for, for what Reuben has. We're tracking together through the same book of the Bible, um, but what God has put on his heart is unique um, and different than what God has put on my heart, and so I know that you'd be blessed uh, to stay for that as well. So we have been tracking through the book of Ephesians, and the strength of his might has been the topic of our study. Um, last, the last two weeks, we covered what is uh, the first intro part where Paul gives us this incredible, uh, comprehensive, really, overview of the blessings of God, of God's purpose and intent towards us uh, realized in his son, Jesus Christ. And we saw um, just how God's intention uh, to make us holy and blameless before him, uh, to adopt us as his own, to include us in his purpose to unite all things in Christ. Um, all things, including Jews and Gentiles, ultimately to the praise of his glory. Um, what an incredible thing to consider our circumstances in light of God's purpose in our life. So what we're going to be covering now, uh, this morning, is to finish out chapter 1. And most of what we're looking at is a prayer that Paul has for the church in Ephesus. Um, you turn with me into Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse uh, 15. Paul says, for this reason, <laughs> for what reason? For everything that we had covered these last two weeks. Because you, church in Ephesus, uh, Gentiles, not part of that, that promised uh, nation, uh, God's chosen nation, but you Gentiles have now received the blessings in Christ, every spiritual blessing. Because of that, um, and because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here his, here's his prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this letter that you inspired Paul to write to the church in Ephesus. God, I pray just as they were receiving it and hearing your words, 
and expecting to be blessed and to be encouraged and to be challenged by your words, I pray that we would receive it in the same way, God. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see your truth this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a couple of things I want to make sure we understand as we get into this. And the first one um, I've phrased in kind of a, well, here, put it up there. Our context is that we are in an epic battle of cosmic proportions. That's our context. And I'm not just putting words in there. We truly are in an epic battle. It's a battle that has been going on for pretty much the whole history of the world. Um, and it is of cosmic proportions. The word cosmic actually is in the book of Ephesians. Um, it's not just a battle that's waged in the realm that we see and understand uh, most presently, but it's also in the spiritual realm, which is not so obvious to us. And this battle uh, is a battle we only really understand because of what the Bible tells us about it. It's mostly waged uh, within the spiritual realm. And the book of Ephesians is written very much with the understanding of this battle in view. It, it's for us to really understand this book, we're going to have to also understand what this, what this context is of this battle that's been going on since the beginning. And this battle, the, the main adversary is Satan. The, the word Satan actually means adversary. And we see throughout the history of the Bible, Satan in opposition to God's purposes. Satan taking what God has created that's good and turning it and making it into something that's evil and something that looks like what is good but has been corrupted. Uh, we see a number of words given to describe Satan in the Bible, uh, including that he's the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the evil one, murderer from the beginning, a liar and the father of lies, deceiving and corrupting everything that God has created and called good. That's our adversary, Satan. Now, Satan was not always an adversary of God. We'd, we don't have a lot of information on his history, but there's a couple of places in the Old Testament where it's, it's actually prophesying about his demise, but in, in that context, it reflects back um, on some of his history. We get a little insight into his origin. If you turn with me, to Isaiah chapter 14. In verse 12, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star. Uh, that word day star uh, actually means bearer of light. That's the word in the Bible that I think the King James Version translates as Lucifer. That's where we get that, that name. Um, oh, how, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit in the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And there was the treason in Satan's heart to make himself like God. In, in Ezekiel, there's another place where we see more insight into him. And, and, and we see that just he was so enthralled with his own beauty 
uh, that that was his downfall, his pride. He wanted to be before God, like God, above God, and greater than God. And so that treason, uh, Satan, was, was Satan's downfall. And we see even Ezekiel, that he was there in the garden as, as a cherub angel. Um, and uh, it, he in the time that he fell, we don't really know. It would have to be sometime after when God saw all that he'd created, which included Lucifer, and, and called it good. So at that point, he hadn't fallen yet. Um, but sometime between then and, and what we read in chapter 3 of Genesis, um, pride entered Satan's heart. And that same treason against God, he carried there to Adam and Eve in the garden. And uh, in, the, in the form of a serpent, he tempted Adam and Eve, and he questioned God's goodness. And then he put before them that same temptation to disobey God, to be like God if they would take the fruit of the tree. And what did we do? We bought into it. We followed him in that. We became treasonous against God ourselves. And we died um, spiritually, uh, separated from the source of life from God. Can you imagine Satan's triumph in that moment? He had caused Adam and Eve, those created in God's image to now rebel against God, and now they would have to suffer the wrath of God, God's perfect justice. And everything that God had put under them, the land and everything in it, uh, was also to be cursed. Can you imagine Satan's victory that he supposed? But even then, like we see time and time again in the Bible, when it looks like Satan has the upper hand, it becomes evident that God is already a step ahead of him. Um, and in, even as God is listing the curses, the curse to the snake, the curse to the man and the woman, right in there, he speaks of a time in the future where the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the snake would have conflict. And the snake would bruise his heel and he would crush the snake. It was already a hint of a plan that God already had in place. And God didn't destroy man then. God actually, in his grace, uh, didn't destroy us, but he had a plan. And throughout the Old Testament, we see uh, people who put faith just in the idea of what God's, that God was going to provide a means of salvation. Their faith was looking forward to Christ, and in that, they were, they were saved. God had a plan, and it wasn't, and over the course of the Old Testament, it's, it's revealed just a little bit at a time. But, but we see then, over the course of the Old Testament, man just continuing in that treason against God, satisfying our desires, rebelling against God, looking for how we can make our own name great, taking everything that Satan puts in front of us of these contorted versions of what God has called good and accepting them as good into our life, constantly looking to be satisfied, but constantly coming up empty and broken. Is that something that you recognize still around us? It's the state of the world that we're in. So salvation remained a mystery uh, over the course, all the way until Christ came on the scene. What God's plan, the fullness of God's plan, what that would ultimately look like. And God, in that time, he created, he, he chose this man, Abraham. He said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. 
and, and through you, through that nation, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. This was a hint of what God was going to ultimately do. And he did create a nation out of Abraham. And that nation, he gave a set of laws. And those laws revealed the holiness of God and, and prescribed this means that man could be made right with God. But those laws didn't save anyone. In fact, the Bible teaches that they just made things worse. Because from, from Adam to Moses, we didn't have a set of rules showing how bad off we were. But then when the law came, now there was a standard that was clear. And so Romans says our transgressions became greater. Because now we were, we were transgressing God's law. But then it also says God's grace became greater. As he's preparing the way ultimately for salvation. Um, God's chosen people, uh, the people of Abraham, they were promised to be blessed if they were to follow God's law. Um, the battles, when they would battle against other nations, were not just a physical battle. It was very much a spiritual battle. And so for them to even hope to succeed in battle against nations around them, they had to rely on God and obedience to God. And sometimes it didn't make sense what God was telling them to do, but there was something they couldn't see. Um, this was a battle that was a much greater battle in the spiritual realms, this epic battle of cosmic proportions. Israel uh, failed time and again. They didn't continue to follow God. And ultimately, we see uh, them, God allowing them to go into captivity. Um, and when they came back out of captivity, uh, they were not the nation that they were before. They'd, they built a temple, but it didn't have the glory that it had before. And it looked like Satan had the upper hand. But, like we know, God had a plan in place. Jesus came on the scene. And boy, in the spiritual realm, things got shook up. They knew who Jesus was. They knew who this baby was who was born. I can't imagine everything going on in the heavenly realms. We, we see these glimpses. We see these shepherds with a host of angels out there. Well, those angels didn't just disappear and go away. Those angels are still there. I can't imagine the angels surrounding Christ there as he's born. A baby in the weakness of man there with the hosts that Satan commands trying to kill him. And, and they tried. They tried to incite Herod to kill all of the babies in the area in order to kill Christ. But God's sovereignty, God's hand was controlling all of it. And Satan didn't have a chance. Uh, we see these incredible things as Christ grew up and he starts casting out demons. That's not something that people did before that time. Christ exercised authority over demons that had never been seen, and they marveled at it. And the Pharisees said, well, then he must be of Beelzebub. He must be Satan if he can cast out demons. And Christ says, Satan? Casting out Satan? Uh, if he's divided against himself, his kingdom can't stand. He said, no, but if I am casting out demons in the name of the, <laughs> in the, name of the Holy Spirit, then or by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus says, I love this. He says right there, uh, how can you enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods 
unless you first bind the strong man. And then you'll be able to plunder his house. What is he saying to them there? He's saying, I have entered Satan's house. I have entered his domain, and I have bound him. Now I am plundering his house, and I am saving lost sinners for myself. That's what Jesus was doing. He was in the heavenly realms, in the spiritual realm, rather. He was causing mayhem. We only barely saw on the surface what was going on there. Um, if you look with me in, in the in book of Luke, chapter 10, there's just this incredible verse I had, I had to include it in here. It's just another hint of something far greater than what's described, uh, but you can only wonder at the fullness of it. So Jesus had sent out, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus had sent out 72 disciples, and they came back all excited. In verse 17, it said, uh, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I don't know when that happened. So, some people suppose it might be right after Jesus was tempted um, in the desert. Um, but there's something incredible there that Jesus just says. It's basically saying, look, I have authority. Authority is in me. And he says, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, he says, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's something for us to take to heart as well. Now, Jesus did cause major disruption in the spiritual world in his time on the earth. But the major victory that Jesus won that was a turning point that makes it significantly different now than what it was before. The battles that Israel had to deal with against spiritual forces are different than how we deal with it now because of this victory that Jesus won and he won it on the cross. Let's look in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. This is what Jesus accomplished. In verse 13, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So we, the ones who from the beginning committed that treason, and now Satan, thinking that he's got Victory forever over mankind because they are lost in their sin. God's full, the fullness of God's plan now realized in Christ. As you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. And how did he do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that record that he outlined by giving us the law, that was the purpose of the law, to show the standard of his holiness and what had to be reconciled. Now he's reconciling his own son as he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross through the hands and feet of Jesus. Jesus paying the penalty for my sin, 
reconciling the debt. Now, what was a distance between me and God has been reconciled, and I can have fellowship with him. And what did he accomplish in the spiritual realm? Comes in verse 15. This is not talking about human rulers. Because he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In Christ, he has disarmed Satan and all spiritual authorities and put them to open shame. Those are the same words used multiple times in Ephesians to describe heavenly or spiritual authorities. Incredible what Christ has, what God has done in Christ. So there's something I want us to understand in addition to the fact that we're in this spiritual battle. It's vital that we know this in our heart. Not only are we in an epic battle of cosmic proportions, but Christ has power and authority over all things. We need to know that. Christ has all power and authority. Let's read back in Ephesians, uh, the second part, starting in verse 20. After Christ was crucified on the cross, God raised him from the dead, verse 20, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, where we have every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. There's those words again. We're talking about spiritual powers and authorities. Let's go to Ephesians 6 just to look real quick. This is is put plainly. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers. See, they're cosmic. See, it's in there. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is what Christ has overcome. His victory is over these powers. And now he is seated. God has placed him above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. The Ephesians were a center of idol worship. They they knew what it was to call on names. They they would call on uh, Artemis, and, and they would call on all of these different Greek gods, we know that there were within this assembly uh, magicians and sorcerers who had renounced all of that and burned all of their books, but in their regular practice, they would have called on false gods, and behind those false gods were demons. And what Paul's saying here is the name of Jesus is above every name that is named. What an encouragement and empowerment to the people in the Ephesians church to know. Jesus is above every name that you have ever named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. That, that first part there, that he put all things under his feet, is actually a quote from Psalms, uh, I believe, chapter 8. And if you look at the context of that quote... It's talking about authority over the earth and everything in it. See what God is doing here? What we had been given dominion over, as Adam given dominion over, and lost because of our fall, 
Now God has put under Christ. Christ has dominion over everything. Christ, in some places, we won't get into here, is considered the second Adam. Um, God is making right what we failed to do in the Garden of Eden through Christ. Christ has power and authority over all things and dominion. All right, so now let's get into Paul's prayer from the beginning of this. Uh, going back to, uh, well, back to verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's his prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, he's not, he's not asking that, that they would be given the spirit. Uh, we already saw just a few verses before that, that when they believe, they receive the promised Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee of their inheritance. But, but, but what he's praying for is what the spirit works in our life. It's, this is the work of the Spirit, to have godly wisdom and revelation and knowledge of God. That's, if, if you recall, when we went through our first series, through the letters of hope, the first letter H was hearing with faith. Everything that he's talking about here is what we find in the Word of God, but it can only be known truly through the power of the Holy Spirit revealing it to us. So that's what he's praying for here. Give them hearing with faith that the, that the Spirit of God reveal to them your wisdom and revelation and knowledge of God, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. And there's three things here that he's going to pray that they know. And I would like this week for us to pray these things for our church, for us individually. I want to pray these things for myself that I would know these things in my heart just as Paul has prayed that the Ephesian church would know. So the first one, Father, open the eyes of my heart to know the hope of your calling. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. For our namesake, Hope Church, Iglesia Esperanza, we should know what it is to walk in the hope of Jesus Christ. Let's turn uh, to First Peter, uh, chapter one. One of my favorite verses. I think I've probably brought it up a few times, <clears throat> but it's just—it's a picture of what our life is in hope. Because what we hope for, we don't see, but we know it. And in verse eight, we see though though you have not seen him, seen Christ, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's our hope, longing for what we can't see, but what we know we have in Christ. And if I, if I go forward a little bit in 1 Peter to verse 13, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our hope is looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ, his imminent return. That needs to be on the forefront of our minds as we're facing difficulties, as we're facing challenges in our church and in our lives, looking forward. We know that what is happening now 
is not the long term. This isn't what it's going to be forever. But there will be a day when Christ will come. And our hope is set in him. Not in things here right now. There are wonderful things here right now. In this church, there are wonderful things here right now. But if we set our hope in this, that can be shaken. But if we set our hope in Jesus Christ, nothing can shake that. We don't know what the future holds. That may be all we have to hold on to at times. So, Father, open the eyes of my heart to see, to know your hope. All right. Second prayer. Father, open the eyes of my heart to know the riches of your inheritance. Looking at verse 18, says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In view here, we have two other places where inheritance is mentioned. In verse 11, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In verse uh, 13 and 14, Uh, We have um, the Holy Spirit. Uh, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. But down here in verse 18, there's a curious difference in the way this is phrased. In verse 14, it's talking about our inheritance. And in verse 18, it's talking about the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What's it talking about in the saints? It's talking about the church. And the first time we see the church introduced in Ephesians here is the end of this passage. Uh, In verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How significant is it that Christ that we are his body. Well, if we go forward uh, into chapter 5 of Ephesians, that Lord willing we will reach someday, as we are getting into, uh, here we'll be getting into more practical application in the church. Uh, But he says, starting in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. We are Christ's body. We are his bride. Um, He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. And then Paul here quotes from Genesis uh, before the fall, when God instituted marriage and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Paul says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So even back then, God was setting in place this picture of Christ and the church. So, David, what does all this have to do with this passage that we're looking at? The glorious inheritance in the saints. 
Jewish wedding ceremony uh, is something that God created. And the way that they would do things is that the, the father of the groom would send his son out with a dowry to go purchase his wife. And if she accepted, uh, then, then they would enter into uh, a betrothal period. It's kind of like um, what we have as being engaged, but it's, it's, much, uh, it's much more significant uh, to, to get out of that would require divorce. Um, but in that betrothal period, then he, he would leave and, and, and often leave a, a precious token of, as a promise that he's going to come back. And he would leave and he would go create their place to live, their house. And then in that time, she would be getting ready. And then, and then ultimately, and it was kind of this thing that I think was probably a fun celebration thing, that, that it was the father of the groom who had would finally decide the day and the hour that he would send the groom to go pick up his bride. And then there would be this great procession and celebration as he goes and picks up his bride. The father sent the son to go pay. And the dowry is not based on the, the bride's family. It's based on the wealth of the groom's family. And Christ paid for his bride with his own blood. And Christ, then when he left, what did he say? He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And he left behind a valuable token as a promise. The Holy Spirit. As a guarantee of what we're going to have with him. You see what's going on here? And one day, God is going to send his son. We don't know the hour. It's going to be a surprise. But boy, it's going to be a celebration when it happens to come fetch his bride. So what is Paul telling us? To have the eyes of our hearts open to know. We can, we can know something about the inheritance that we're going to have with Christ. Like we could go into Revelation and look at it. It's glorious and it's wonderful. But there's only so much that I can know about that. Well, how about the glorious inheritance that Christ is going to have in his bride, in his church? It's right here for me to see and know you all are his glorious inheritance. When you look around this room, do you see that? Do we know that in our heart, that Hope Church when we see each other, that we're seeing the riches of his glorious inheritance that Christ loves as his own body. When we see Iglesia Esperanza, the fullness of this body that God has put here, do we see the glorious inheritance that Christ has being built here in this body? When we see the believers that are here in Austin and in Fellowship Church, uh, that has sent us. And, and as we get to know more churches in this area, do we see them, our brothers and sisters, as part of the bride? Do we cherish them like Christ cherishes them? Father, open the eyes of my heart to know the glory of your inheritance in the saints. All right, finally, he says, 
open the eyes of their heart so that they will know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. Father, open the eyes of my heart to know the greatness of your power. Boy, we need to know this. Everything that we talked about, the power of Christ, the authority of Christ, what God has accomplished in Christ and the victory that Christ has won. In verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him The Father gave Christ as head over all things to the church. The head of Hope Church is seated at the right hand of the Father and has power and dominion and authority over everything. We need to know that. The theme of this study is to walk in the strength of his might. We need to know in our heart the strength of his might so that when we come against the enemy, and we're going to learn more about how we do that, it's in his strength, in his way. We need to know that it's in the power and authority of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross on our behalf, for taking our punishment, for having victory over Satan. God, Satan doesn't wield the same kind of power now that he did before because you, God, you have disarmed him. Yes, he's still our adversary. Yes, he's still out there. And God, we need to trust in your power, in your ways as we come against him, as we reach the community around us for your name. But God, let us know in our heart the power that you have over anything that we might face and give us faith and trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.